obsessed with all things ovine, there is seriously something about sheep and always something new to learn about keeping, breeding and farming them. Welcome to the Sheep Show podcast. I'm Jill Noble from Holston Valley Farm and Sheep Stud and your host. The Sheep Show podcast exists to help you no matter where you are in the world, what sheep you breed, what size your flock is. This podcast will help your sheep knowledge and your shepherding confidence grow. And it's a two-way street. I love to hear from you and find out how your sheep journey is going. Contact me via Instagram at Halston Valley Farm or via email jill at halstonvalleyfarm.com.au. Come along on this episode as we explore the amazing world of sheep and sheep farming together. There have been a few things on our farm that surprised me, I suppose, in terms of things I wasn't expecting when we started farming full time, I suppose, or farming on a larger scale. We had a small sort of urban fringe farm for eight years before we had the farm we have now. And th- one of the things that I, I suppose I'm most surprised about slash shocked slash overwhelmed is weeds. (laughs) And particularly, I think, given that we are in a very wet environment, we have a lot of different types of weeds and a lot of quite serious weeds that are quite impactful. Now, I will put in some disclaimers here. Weeds can be like we're legislated to manage weeds. So we have a legal obligation to actually manage certain types of what they often call noxious weeds. Um, there's a really good website called Weeds Australia, if um, if you are in Australia, and I'm sure there's similar ones around the world. But even if you're not in Australia, Weeds Australia is quite useful because I'll talk to you about the act, the, the the concept that the same weed could be here in Australia and also anywhere else in the in the world. For example, one of the issues, biggest weeds we have, it's also huge in Ireland, so you just never know. But I highly suggest to you to have a look at um, Weeds Australia, and it really talks about managing invasive species. And that's really the weeds that I'm particularly going to talk about today, three in particular that impact us locally and the journey that we've been on with and without sheep, so um, to be able to manage those uh, to manage those weeds. So... Um, The three weeds in particular that I'm going to focus on today are blackberries, hello, surprise, surprise, Um, ragwort, and thistles, yeah? So probably for no matter where you're listening in the world, you might be aware of what these, some of these weeds are. So let's start with blackberries. Most of you probably realize uh, about blackberries. Now, the good thing about blackberries is they do and they can taste very nice. Okay, so if you have ever eaten hedgerow or wild blackberries, they really do taste very, very good. The bad news about blackberries is that wherever there's one, there is multiple. They spread really, really quickly. They grow really, really quickly, and not only do they take up actual productive land, 
they can provide a habitat for feral species. For example, our old friend the fox tends to live in blackberry bushes. So obviously we're trying to manage these weeds from a point of view of agricultural productivity, but also habitat. And then also for us, we now have quite a lot of visitors. When I say quite a lot of visitors, we might have 20 to 30 different people through our farm gate every week, some of whom actually stay on site. And they see, they walk through our property and they see the weeds. So from an aesthetic point of view, from an enjoyment point of view of actually walking around the farm, and being able to access areas or enjoy areas that we have to look at, then blackberries in particular can be a bit of an issue. So let me take you on the journey that we have been on. So we uh, had in our urban fringe farm also had blackberries and uh, we were very lucky. Gary's kids were reasonably young, young enough to sort of force them or bribe them to work in those days. They're a bit older now. Uh, So that's exactly what we did. We bribed them to clip the blackberries. The four of us did it. We all worked on one particular corner. Like literally there was like a third of this little paddock that we had was covered in blackberries. And we gradually hacked our way and spent Saturday afternoons with little sort of hedge clippers clipping through it. And we managed it. But of course, even though it seemed very overwhelming at the time, it was actually in hindsight incredibly manageable and easy to actually do. Now, when you have blackberries like we have on an exceptionally large scale, then everything changes. So we thought, oh, well, well, let's clip them. Yeah, we can't do that. Some of them are just simply too big and there's just too many. And then you get repetitive strain anyway in your arm. So clipping doesn't work. So we thought we would try then to physically or manually remove them by pulling them out. So this, in this particular strategy, we were able to tie a wire rope around the blackberry bush, around the base of the blackberry bush, and we were able to then drive off and pull it out. That's okay if it's manageable. That's okay if it's in an area that we can access. And it did work for a few areas. We whippersnipped. Yeah. We had 40 goats at one stage. Actually, they did very well. And of course, funny enough, our sheep also eat blackberries, particularly the lambs. However, some of our blackberries are the size of an elephant. (laughs) So sheep aren't going to be very successful with eating, you know, their own weight in blackberry leaves 50 or 80 or 100 times over. So... They just simply skirt the blackberry, which is a good start, but they're not going to kill and they're not going to remove the blackberry and the blackberry will simply just have a little haircut and grow back even more next year. And what we were finding is we were leaving them sort of doing a few manually physically and we were able to um, get rid of some, but other areas of our property were literally being engulfed in blackberries, which is really sad. So we decided we would try another method, and that was to, we purchased a sprayer, spray unit, quite an expensive spray unit, 
which would cope with a natural um, approach. So we tried like industrial strength vinegar, for example. We tried another product called Slasher. And we tried a lot, pretty much any organic property that was on the market that we could source, we tried it. And did they have an impact? Yeah, they had an impact. However, not, it didn't kill. Nothing that we tried that was organic killed the blackberry. Now, we did not want to actually use Roundup or any multiple ingredient product. So what we have found that works for blackberries, and I suppose I'll just explain to you how it actually works, but the product we have been using very successfully with our spray unit is a product called Garlon. Now, Garlon has one ingredient, and that ingredient penetrates the stalk or the actually briar of the blackberry, the cane, if you like, of the blackberry, it penetrates that through the leaf, gets sort of drink, the, the leaf drinks it into the into the, the, uh, the cane and then takes it down into the root. And the great thing about this particular product is that it doesn't kill anything that is surrounding that particular blackberry. So it doesn't kill grass, it doesn't kill any pasture, it doesn't kill, ironically, it doesn't actually kill any other weeds. So, you know, we've tried it on some thistles and so on, and really it it doesn't do very, very much on thistles. Um, they just simply just stand there. Um, so <laughs> it's a it's a very targeted product and it is having exceptional results for us. Now we are still left with the dead canes and the concept is that you use the garlon once. Uh, it, it needs to be used very similar to any other sort of chemical treatment, you know, under a 30 degree day, 30 degrees Celsius that is. Um, no, no rain and I think within about three hours, low wind, that sort of thing. And because we have this spray unit, we are able to actually do large quantities. Like we are applying six to 800 liters of, um, of spray. And you only need a tiny amount of garlon in water to be able to have a, a be effective. We also use a dye. So when we spray the area, we, we put in a red dye. So two reasons for that. One, so when you're spraying, you can actually see where the spray has hit, what leaves you've got and what leaves you've missed. And then the other reason, it anyone who comes along when the bush is not dead looking, they know that it's been sprayed. So it's a, I suppose, a health strategy as well in terms of particularly on roadsides and things like that where we have uh, we have sprayed as well so great success with garlon it really has been working very well for us um and if you can get your hands on it sometimes it's not that easy to get your hands on or actually find it in a shop or or things like that but where you actually can um it can be really really good and it's got only one active ingredient which is called triclofer um, so there you go. Uh, 
good to just sort of look at. And it particularly works, as I said, on blackberries or woody bushes. Um, and uh, it is available in the US as well for my US listeners um, under the trade name Garlon as well. So you can actually purchase it if you do have a bit of a blackberry issue and a blackberry problem. The spray unit that we have, it, you know, really is good. It's got a pump on it. It's very efficient. It just pulls along behind our ute or side by side. Uh, it does take a lot to clean it out, though, um, because of the pump and the really, really long, so very, very long hose. So we can actually get it to really remote areas where we can't drive to. Uh, so it's really quite, um, really quite good. And in the UK, Garlon is sold, I believe, under the trade name SBK Brushwood Killer. And in the US, Garlon and Remedy are the two names that um, it's used uh, for. Um, you can read up the full material safety data sheet. It degrades rapidly in water. It remains active in the vegetation for about three months. That's all. It doesn't kill anything else. It's very species specific. Uh, it does say that you don't use it near waterways and sensitive habitats. So just bear that in mind. So it, it ca- you know, even though um, it degrades rapidly in water, obviously will it, it's going to impact um, aquatic life and the like. So something to just uh, to just think about. But um, we haven't used it in any of our sort of wetlands area uh, as of yet. Uh, and this is where we would go back to sort of physical movement or physical removal of those blackberries. Um, we've also used a hey, old-fashioned scythe, and then for smaller blackberries, we would just use a, a, a hoe. And that brings me on to thistles. <laughs> so thistles, and in particular, uh, the ones that we have, the main issue we have, we have some smaller ones, but the main issue with thistles we have is the sort of the giant ones. So, you know, the ones that grow up to four to five to six foot, the, the, um, the really, I think they're called Scotch thistles. So they've got the little purple head, a very sort of standing tall, erect. They grow up to two meters high, as I mentioned. So really, really quite high. Generally one main stem, lots of numerous branches coming off those stems. And the issue with them is, well, they look really ugly. Nothing eats around them. So again, a huge loss to agricultural land. And of course they spread like crazy. They really, really do. So they cause a, a lot of um, ugliness and they cause a lot of waste uh, as well. Um, and uh, and of course, for us too, we're, we're obviously trying to be reasonable neighbors. So to try and to, to remove those all these weeds to stop them spreading in our area and really try and sort of manage, manage things on a, a local level, collectively with our neighbors who do manage weeds very, very well too. Um, but I've definitely noticed, obviously with blackberries and thistles, your carrying capacity is going to be reduced. Yeah, because like thistles can take up a huge area. If you think of one thistle 
which might grow, you know, I don't know, maybe I don't know, 50, 100 centimeters wide and in a circumference. And then it may have 40 friends. That's a big area when you think about the carrying capacity and you think about the um, loss of, uh, of agricultural land. Um, and of course, native to Europe, lots of, lots of weeds in, a- in Asia too, thistles in particular. Uh, but here in Australia, it's actually very, um, very noxious and we really need to, to try and control it and try and manage it. So how do we do that? Well, uh, this is where Jill spends her summer evenings out with a hoe most of the time. And a lot of people who come here, when we did our, our we do a, a freshman's farmer week here where we have a group of young adults who come along and learn to farm. They get paid, they participate in everything that we do. They stay here on site and they get fed and they do, we do lots of evening activities for them. And one of the things they end up having to do is a couple of, most of them do a half a day to a day's thistling over a week um, or hoeing thistles. And yeah, it's not much fun, but I find it very, uh, one, therapeutic, it's good exercise and it's really satisfying. Not only do you see instantly the results, but you see the results next year and the year after and the year after that. So I remember one of the first areas I attacked probably four years ago now, and it would would have took me hours and hours to do a hillside. Now, if I just go back to that area every year, it's probably taken me five to 10 minutes to just keep it under control and reduce anything that might be there. And that is just after, you know, concentrating. And, And what I generally do is I just take particular focus area and just absolutely smash that and really just hone in on one paddock or one area and um, and try and reduce those thistles. Of course, the, the idea is the smaller, the better. The idea is getting them before they seed. We haven't tried any sprays on thistles. Uh, we do have some of the smaller thistles. We do need to look into what we can do with them, but they are only small and in, in very isolated, localized areas. But these big thistles, hoeing, to be honest, we, I mean, when I say hoeing, like we have like four different types of hoes. <laughs> now we are like hoe collectors here and use them all. And uh, it's great when people come because they get to hoe. <laughs> Hard to believe, um, but it's very, very effective. And then, of course, when you see little blackberries, you can hoe them or chip them. Some people call them chipping weeds uh, as well. So that's our our thistles. We did notice just before we finish on the blackberries and the thistles, when we had the goats, two things with the goats. The goats loved the blackberries and they did a really, really good job on the blackberries. Again, bear in mind, they're going to struggle with blackberries the size of an elephant, but they really did a good job on the blackberries. But the problem is blackberries aren't around all year, all year round. So the goats did a great job in spring and summer on the blackberries but in winter, they really didn't have anything that they liked to eat. They're not crazy about grass. They hate hay, you know, so they're pretty miserable here. And we did have an African like boar goat, you know, the ones with the lovely brown heads, beautiful. And the meat was so easy to sell. It was such a fabulous option for us. 
However, it was it was simply too wet. Uh, the, the types of paddocks we have probably would be a bit better now because we've fenced off different areas and they would we would be able to manage them in drier areas. So we may return to them down the track. But for the moment, no goats, which means they uh, we don't have the blackberry eaters and the goats loved the thistles. They would particularly when those thistles were in flower, the goats would just devour them. I remember putting about 20 goats in one really thistle-infested paddock, and there would have been hundreds of thistles. And uh, going back about three days later and going, wow, all the thistles were gone. (laughs) There was still the stem, but in terms of no seed heads at all in sight, in that whole paddock, they did such a good job. Um, uh, with uh, my horses too, my ho- horses actually will eat a lot of um, milk thistles too. So they're quite fond of the odd weed, the horses. So they can be quite useful if you have horses on your property too. We use the horse. I must do a podcast on horses because we use horses very strategically um, on our property as well. And they uh, they are a bit partial to the odd thistle too. So that's our thistles. And the third weed is ragwort. Now, ragwort is a native weed, I believe, to Europe and the UK. It's extremely noxious um, and very prolific. Like it will spread like crazy. You probably would have heard the saying that one year's seeds is seven years weeds. Um, it, it, it doesn't look that bad. It's, it's a sort of single stem, probably up to 60 centimeters uh, and kind of starts off in a cabbage-like state and then sort of sprouts or stalks uh, and when then you end up with flowers, they're like daisy-like heads, large clusters, lots of branches, and florets in the, uh, at the end of the the sort of flowering stage. And they spread with everything. Wind and water spreads the seeds. Uh, they get stuck on animals, and they're transported around. They can even be in hay and things like that. But really airborne, the seeds literally float on water. So it's really, really awful, um, awful, uh, awful seeds. Yeah. So the first year, it's a sort of a cabbage rosette. And then the second year, the plant matures and then in flowers. Um, and uh, then the, the seeds appear that again in, for us, in, particularly in spring uh, as well. So, and then they, they do die. They have a natural um, die. But the interesting thing is the ragwort seeds, listen to this, viable in the soil up to 16 years. <laughs> so you have one ragwort plant. So that, you know, one year's weeds is seven years seeds is like a minimum from for ragwort. So it's eight to 16 years. The ragwort does like humid temperatures. It likes high rainfall. Um, heavy soils, moderate fertility, degraded pasture, 
all anything that's disturbed um, as well. So if you're not in those areas, then you're probably thinking, what is called, what is Ragworth? Thank goodness you don't have any. But I can tell you down in Gippsland, there was a book written about the Yellow Hills because of ragwort and the impact that it uh, that can actually have. The other thing is it can cause liver, liver damage and death in animals. It can taint the milk for dairy cows. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't get any better, does it? It just keeps on going in terms of the impact. And of course, value, productivity of land and so on. It's really, really bad. <clears throat> uh, and of course... A lot of people will get rid of it by picking it up, pulling it out. It's quite easy to pull out, but the problem is you can't dispose of it at a tip or naturally. I don't think you can, I think you can burn it. So often what people do is, you can't burn here in summer. So what people do is they bag it in like a plastic, black plastic bag and then solarize it. And then in winter, burn it. Now, if you've got lots of ragwort, that's a lot of work. Pulling them out, bagging them, and then keeping them for six months and then burning them. So what do we do with ragwort? We use sheep. (laughs) Yes, you heard it. Sheep. Now, again, uh, some of these ragwort ragwort flowers and plants can grow really, really tall. (laughs) They can grow in the middle of blackberries. Like some of them, I mentioned 60 centimeters. Some of them actually can grow to 90 centimeters tall. So again, uh, a sheep is not going to necessarily find that and uh, and eat that. And now when I said to you it was supposedly toxic to animals, yeah, I, I believe it's still toxic to sheep, but I've never had a sheep die from it. And the way to look at it here is, is ragwort the only thing that they're eating? Is that the only pasture, the only crop that they have to eat? And of course, that is not the case. They have plenty of standing hay and grass and clover and they have um, plantain and chicory and all sorts of other things that are growing as well. So the, the idea is that in long-term liver damage can um, can happen, but sheep have de- my sheep in particular have developed a taste for ragwort, so they actively seek out the flowering plants. I've seen them eat the cabbages too, but they really do seem to like the um, the the flowers. They just love them. And it's quite amazing how they actually eat them. Uh, Seemingly what happens with sheep is their digestive systems are able to detoxify much of the poison. And because the toxic toxicity of ragwort is over a long period, a long, a long time, uh, and sheep are only eating it maybe once a year, it's not toxic to them. Yeah. So appropriate stocking density, a good variety is going to help with, um, with your ragwort management and sheep. Um, you, <laughs> this is the interesting thing though. Move, you, you remove those sheep 
from that particular area, you will have ragwort again. So that's kind of sad, isn't it? But again, 16 years, just bear that in mind. So there's still going to be some in that particular area. And of course, for us, if you have neighbors with ragwort, then you're going to have more ragwort. Um, no control. Goats don't eat this. Absolutely. Goats don't eat it. Horses don't eat it. Cattle don't eat it. Uh, deer don't eat it either if you have wild deer and things like that. Um, so, <laughs> so sheep are the answer. That's exactly it. Just sheep. <laughs> Just sheep. Listen, I think you can, um, you can spray, uh, I'm not familiar with any spray that would work, but definitely good pasture management. If you've got good cover there, then your the ragwort seed doesn't seem to germinate as well. So, so less disturbance grazing well rather than overgrazing. If you overgraze, you're just going to welcome the ragwort in droves into your uh, into your property uh, as well. So, so it's quite amazing, isn't it, that sheep can be literally the answer to all our prayers, and particularly they are a significant answer to our ragwort problem. Like when we came here first, the, you know, the minute we drove in the gate, we saw there was ragwort everywhere. And there was sheep here, by the way. There was some sheep when we came originally, and then they left for a while um, before we got our sheep eventually. So we ended up having to pull ragwort and we actually even called one of our paddocks Ragwort Road because it has a big sort of curvy road in there. And when we fenced that and put the sheep in, we had to rename it something else because there was no more ragwort, yeah? And it's really cute when you when you go into a paddock and you see what the sheep have done. Basically, they strip the stalk, they strip the whole stalk of, of the ragwort. And again, they, they developed a, a taste for it. And particularly they actively look for, like there could be so many other things. There could be clover to eat and the sheep will make a beeline for the flowering plant, of the, the ragwort flowering plant. So there you go. Um, uh, and I've noticed that even lambs, sometimes I do worry about the lambs. I do think, have you got your taste for ragwort yet? But they develop pretty quickly around here. So they've already cleaned that um, ragwort road that doesn't have much ragwort, but again, 16-year seeds, so it does come back. But they were grazing in that particular area recently, my lambs. And uh, yeah, no more ragwort. So, uh, so there you go. So I'm interested, what weeds do you have? What weeds are your problem? How do you manage them? What do you do? Do you have some interesting strategy, approach, tool, technique to deal with weeds? Drop me a line. I'll also do a YouTube video on weeds in the next couple of weeks with some images and pictures before and after of all of these weeds that I've been talking about and you can very much um, comment there and, and share what weeds you have in your local area and how you manage them because this is an ongoing thing and we know particularly if we are grazing like sheep and horses for example or sheep and goats or 
sheep and cattle. We can manage the land better. So when we have that sort of flurred effect, if you like, if you haven't heard of that, I think that's a Greg Judy word, flurred, where he, he uses his cows and his sheep together to graze in a in a little flurred. Uh, so, yeah. So do share, please. So look out for that YouTube video coming up on the weeds. You'll see some images and pictures and before and after. And yeah, please do share because that's a great way for everyone else to learn and to be aware of what has worked for you, particularly in different areas of the world that you are all in. It's been lovely watching lately just to see where you're all dialing in from and listening in from. So uh, it's really, really nice to see. In fact, um, I noticed that there's someone listening in my hometown of Cavan in Ireland. So please make yourself known to me. Who are you, mysterious Cavan Sheep Show podcast listener? I would love to know who you are and if we know each other potentially uh, from uh, from a past life. So a big shout out to uh, to anyone uh, in Ireland who's listening. And I'm sure you know exactly what ragwort is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sheep Show podcast. Please take a moment to share this episode via your podcast app, email, or social media channels. Each share helps us reach listeners just like you who can benefit from our sheep-focused content. Let me know how your sheep journey is going. Contact me via Instagram at Halston Valley Farm or via email jill at halstonvalleyfarm.com.au. Until next time, sheep well.